Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how likely are you to get COVID-19? Does your life feel like it's racing back to normal? Are you finding yourself a bit excited or maybe a bit miffed that your weekends are so full again with social activities and shopping? There's less time for that jigsaw or perfecting the banana bread recipe. The prevalence of COVID-19 in Ireland is dwindling. Over the past seven days, there have been an average of 14 new cases per day. Remember in April, that figure was about 600 cases per day. So what does this mean about the virus's future in Ireland? Our OR number is remarkably stable at under one, but we have seen it march over two in Germany. And could that happen here? We're having debates about one metre versus two metres social distancing, the wearing of masks and whether quarantining for visitors should end as early as the 1st of July. These conversations are always trying to balance the importance of getting back to normal while also making sure we don't see a second wave or that OR number, how many people a diagnosed person passes COVID onto, increases. When you see the daily figures and a prevalence rate of just a few cases in the community, it might feel like it's kind of impossible to become infected right now. But obviously that's untrue as we are still seeing some diagnoses every day, which is why we're being told to keep the DATE acronym in mind. D for distance, A for activities like hand washing, sneeze and cough etiquette, time, like don't stay until 3am with the same group of people in a house, and the environment, outdoors is better than indoors, etc. So with all of this kind of playing off each other, it's kind of hard to answer the question, how likely are you and I to get COVID-19? So to look at the risks and how we can mitigate for them, I'm joined on The Explainer today by Professor Paul Moyna, head of the Department of Biology and Director of the Human Health Research Institute at Maynooth University. But first, I'm going to rewind a few days to when Professor Sam McConkie, infectious disease specialist, was chatting with Brendan O'Connor on Weekend on One on RT Radio about just this topic. The chance of you or me having is around a one in a million. And I know that's a cliche that we use just to say it's very low. How is it one in a million? You're saying only five people have it. Are we not seeing like each, 14 Each day, a day we're getting about 10 or 15 cases. But I, what I'm saying is that the majority of those now are no one household okay. contacts okay, or work sorry, yeah. contacts. Or no, they're already in self-isolation because they were already known to be close to somebody else who had it already. So they're part of a known chain of an epidemic spread and they're already in isolation. They're not on. So this is not circulating in the community anymore, exactly. Sam, is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. So it, the circulating level in the community is very, very low, about about the one in a million. And, and especially, as we've heard, many counties in the west of Ireland, Donegal, Sligo, Leitrim, it's, it's exceptionally low. It has been low for for several weeks. So that's, that's very, very good news. So my view is that if your granny lives in Leitrim or, or Sligo or Donegal and you live in Leitrim, Sligo, maybe it's okay there to hold your granny because there isn't any of the stuff about. If you live in North Dublin, perhaps, where there's a bit more or somewhere where there's a big meat factory where there's been an outbreak or if you're in a household where there's been a recent outbreak, then probably you shouldn't hold your granny. So I, I, I think the switch to individual responsibility is very wise and it, 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 it allows us to live. There's a time to live and this is the time to get out and live a bit, Brent. It's a time to live. Yeah. Paul, when I hear that, I hear that you don't just hear the one in a million cliche, as uh, Sam says himself, but it sounds like everyone's likelihood of getting COVID-19 is slightly different to the next person's likelihood of getting COVID-19. Would that be a fair summation? Probably is in terms of, you know, who you're exposed to, Sinead. But I think there's two important terms, one which is prevalence and the other which is incidence. So incidence is the number of new cases that are reported each day. But the prevalence is the proportion of individuals in the population that actually have COVID-19 at present. 
So if we look, for example, when a person gets infected, uh, after being infected, they present with symptoms after maybe day five or day six, but they probably become infectious at around day three or so, and they remain infectious for a number of days. So really in terms of working out the prevalence and the proportion of individuals that have it at any given time, you probably need to look over a 14-day period. So if we were to look back over the last 14 days, cumulatively we've had about 200 cases. So out of a population of 5 million, that equates to about 1 in 25,000. Now, some of those cases are clustered, so in the community it's it's less, and sort of the estimates there are about 1 in 40,000. Now, those figures are obviously depend on the number of cases that are actually confirmed and detected. So they're probably a little bit um, higher in the sense that we're not detecting all the cases. So because we know that some asymptomatic individuals can transmit the virus as well. Now, this compares very favorably, obviously, with when we look at the height of the peak of infection, we were looking at prevalence rates of one in 650 in the community, one in 2000. And again, it was probably even higher than that because if you cast your mind back to the peak of infection, our testing uh, regimen was under extreme stress. So at that situation, you know, we could have been sort of maybe one in 100, you know, in terms of prevalence. So certainly, Sinead, we've, we've come a long, long way. But at the moment, the prevalence yeah, is probably around one in 25,000 in the community, probably around one in 40,000. And, and so that means, um, is the prevalence more important than the incidence when we're talking about risk? Yeah, I think so, because the, the prevalence actually, that determines and it indicates the number of people at a given time with active infection. So in other words, people who are infected and who have the ability to infect others. So obviously when we hear today, if the numbers are four or five, but the people who were tested positively yesterday, obviously they still have the ability to infect uh, others. So the prevalence is really important because that captures the number of individuals at a given time who are infected with the virus. And usually we would look over sort of a 14 day period to try to capture that prevalence. And how important are regional variations? Because I know at this, people are very interested in looking and particularly at the start, remember Monaghan only had, didn't have a case when every other county did. And people in Monaghan were quite proud of that. And people have continued to look at how their county are doing um, with this. But how important is that when you look at the prevalence rate? So if you're in Dublin, is the prevalence rate a bit different to say somewhere like Leitrim where it's much lower? Yeah, it would be. And it really, like, we've learned quite a lot over the last number of weeks and one to two months in terms of how this virus is transmitted. And one of the things we know about this virus now is not transmitted evenly. And what I mean by that, it's not a case that everybody transmits to the same level. And a number of different scientific approaches have been used now to show that up to maybe 80% of the transmission is done by 10% of the individuals. And we tend to get those like super spreading events in situations that are you know, sort of more indoor, poorly ventilated areas, um, you know, people quite closely associated with each other and depending on the type of activity. So this relates back to what the Taoiseach mentioned uh, last week, this idea of date and those factors that control the risk or that determine, I guess, the risk uh, of transmission. So when we begin to look at, we, we see a lot of clustering type events 
in locations like nursing homes, for example. So when we're looking at regional distribution, it's really important to look at where those super spreading events takes place. So regionally, that's obviously going to be very determined by where these clusterings uh, take place and where they are located. And then that will obviously determine the, the prevalence in individual regions. Because that, I know um, Professor McConkie used it as a cliche, the one in a million, but it's not really the same. The prevalence isn't quite the same as our odds of catching it. No, no. So the way to think about uh, prevalence, Sinead, is to think about so if the prevalence at the moment is one in 25,000. So that means randomly, if you were to bump into 25,000 people, one of those people will be positive. Now, again, I would say just the prevalence is higher than that because we're not picking up all the cases. But that gives you a sense in terms of the likelihood of catching this, that if you were to mix with 25,000 people, you know, at least one person would have the virus. So I think that probably gives a better measure in terms of, you know, the risk of uh, getting the virus. Whereas if you compare that to the peak, where based on the number of um confirmed cases the prevalence is one in 650 now again we weren't picking up all cases and we could be picking up maybe as low as one in five one in ten of cases so you could be down at one in 100 so i think that gives a better sense in terms of the relative risk and how the risk has changed over time do we have any idea you mentioned there a couple of times about how we we won't and you can't catch every single case because the testing and asymptomatic cases do we have any idea of how many cases like that there have been in Ireland? So currently uh, the HSE has just started this week what's called a seroprevalence study. So obviously in terms of picking up active infection that's sort of a transient thing in the sense that you get the virus and then you clear it after uh, a number of days. A more permanent signature of having been infected is that when you're infected with the virus you tend to produce antibodies against the virus. And those antibodies tend to remain. We're not quite sure for how long. There have been some recent studies suggesting that they can wane over time, but they're a more permanent signature of having been infected by the virus. So at the moment, the HSE is carrying out a seroprevalence study where they're doing taking a random sample of the population. I think it's around 5,000 5, individuals. And they're going to look at antibody detection and to see if these individuals have antibodies against the virus. And that will give a pretty good measure of the prevalence in terms of having antibodies and then they can extrapolate that back to the population. Now this has already been done in a number of other uh, countries in Europe and we end up with this sort of zero prevalence rate but the zero prevalence rate is usually single digits so it's probably in Ireland's probably I would guess going to be maybe around five percent or so. Um, so if you look at five percent of the population maybe that have been infected by the virus that would tend to suggest, I'm not sure of the actual calculation, but we probably end up with maybe three, four 400,000 people that have been infected by the virus. But that would give us a, a pretty accurate measure of how many have been infected, yet we only have at the moment uh, about, what, 25, 26,000 confirmed cases that have been directly confirmed with respect to having been infected by the virus. And do we know more about immunity now? So would those say if it is that 5%, 300,000 people, would they have immunity for any length of time? So, so first of all, the fact that they have uh, antibodies doesn't necessarily mean that they're immune to the virus. But I, but I think there's some there's a number of reasons why you would be confident that at least there's some uh, level of immunity, albeit we're not sure how long that immunity will last for. So firstly, there haven't been any documented cases of people being reinfected. Uh, at one stage in Korea, there were some cases that people were had cleared the virus and then they were tested positive again. But then it was shown that those positive tests just related to picking up remnants of the virus as opposed to uh, infectious uh, virus. So in terms of are you actually immune, again, some suggestions that yes, you are. 
in that for many uh, confirmed cases, if you take blood samples from those individuals who have the antibodies, you can show in lab-based tests that those antibodies can stop the virus from infecting cells in the lab. So they're called neutralizing antibodies and neutralizing antibodies would protect you against infection. So many individuals that have been exposed to the virus have generated antibodies, have those neutralizing antibodies. Also from a therapeutic perspective, there have been some studies showing using plasma transfer, which is the transfer of the liquid phase of blood from a convalescing individual. So somebody who's had the virus, has recovered from the virus, taking blood from that and transferring that into somebody who has the virus and who's quite ill. And again, the effects there seem to be quite promising, showing that these antibodies uh, can help. Another question, so whilst the probably, yes, you probably have immunity, but in terms of how long that lasts for, we're not quite sure. A paper just was published last week in the journal Nature Medicine, a very prestigious journal. And this was a study taken from China uh, and what they've shown there is that antibodies can be detected, but they tend to decrease and decrease over a period of three months. And we can't really look beyond that because the virus is so new. I think it's obvious a lot of people would like to know whether they had COVID-19 over the last few months or not, just for their own personal uh, reasons. But what do the scientists and the medical community want to learn from uh, such a survey? Really in terms of... so. Going back to a question you asked earlier, we don't know how many individuals in Ireland actually have been infected by the virus. Um, why is it important to know that? It's important to know that in the context of calculating what's known as an infection fatality rate. So if 100 people are infected with this virus, how many people will die from the virus? If you look at the moment, the case fatality rate is about 6%. So if you look at the number of confirmed cases, about 25, 26,000, look at the number of deaths, that converts into a case fatality rate of about 6%. Now the calculations, the estimates of the actual infection fatality rate, if we could absolutely identify every person who was infected by the virus and then calculate as a percentage the number of people who have died from that cohort of people who've been infected. Again, the estimates internationally sort of range is probably somewhere between, I would guess, 0.5 and 1%. So that probably is a more accurate representation. Some would say even lower uh, than that. So it's really important from a scientific perspective to find out how deadly this virus is. By doing these seroprevalence studies, that would give us a pretty good measure and a pretty good estimate in terms of how deadly the virus is. And also over time, it allows us to follow the disease and look at how uh, disease uh, is, is spreading. Also looking at seroprevalence with respect to vaccines, for example. So looking at you know the presence of antibodies, that may determine whether somebody needs a vaccine or not. So there's a variety of applications there, Sinead, where it's very useful to know the antibody status. One of the things we've uh, heard a lot over the last few months, Paul, is this idea of crushing the curve um, instead of flattening it, uh, which was kind of the aim originally. Is crushing the curve possible? I think I think it is possible, Sinead, but the concern I would have is in terms of the uncertainty with respect to how long that would take. So even if you were to model this and look to see how long it would take to get zero cases in Ireland, it's very difficult to be the definitive on how long that would uh, take. Then secondly, if you were to achieve and completely eliminate the virus from Ireland, uh, how feasible is it to keep it that way and to prevent further infection from the outside? And especially Ireland being such an open uh, country, I think that would be very difficult uh, to achieve. So certainly whilst it's theoretically possible, I think practically it would be very difficult to achieve. 
So in my own view, the, the best approach to use is our numbers now uh, are very low. We need to open back up the, uh, the country. And it's to try to, as we unwind the restrictions and obviously risks associated with that, but to support that and support that, not only with all the, you know, the personal responsibility we have in terms of social distancing and wearing masks and various other things, but there's all sort of a state responsibility there in testing and tracing. I think it's really, really important. So if we're still in that suppression phase, so we couldn't really wait to get down to zero. I think that's one of the things that confuses people. Every day we're still seeing cases, so it's still out there. But yet we're moving into phase three, we're opening up the roadmap, we'll be doing a lot of normal things in, in the next few weeks. Was there a specific number that we were looking to get or an effort we're looking to get to um, that was saying that we could say then, yes, it is the right time to do this? I don't think that that, that was never communicated from NFET in terms of, you know, what level, you know, they wanted to get down to. Certainly the level of transmission now is quite low, but I think sometimes it can be a little bit misleading because, you know, when you hear if there are four new cases per day, again, going back to what we discussed previously in terms of prevalence, uh, but that doesn't mean there's just four active cases, you know, in the country. Like over the last 14 days, you know, we have, and we're not picking up on all the cases. So we have still, you know, significant numbers, albeit quite uh, low numbers. But again, if you were to try to get that down to zero, even in terms of modeling that, I haven't heard any specific times in terms of how long it would take to get down and completely eliminate the virus. So again, to prolong the lockdown and maybe go into even more severe lockdown for an extended time period, in because you're not definite and you don't have certainty in terms of how long that would take, I think the, the price you pay for that in terms of prolonged lockdown would be very difficult to justify, in my view. So as we're moving into phase three, what for you are the riskiest things, the riskiest scenarios that people could find themselves in from Monday? So so if, so if you look now, as I've said before, in terms of the research and what, what is telling us with respect to how the virus is uh, transmitted, it's transmitted most of it by a small number of individuals under certain circumstances. So probably, I guess, the high-risk ones is where we begin to gather together inside uh, and in numbers and reasonably close together. Uh, so, you know, gatherings of 50 people inside, you know, that's obviously increased risk and more risk relative to meeting outside. So this is probably the most high-risk so far, but again, it's something we, we have to address, obviously, in terms of getting back to some degree of normality. So it's really important, again, but it comes back to trying to measure that risk and if there is increased risk and increased transmission it's really important to be able to pick that up at the moment we're probably in a good place because with our testing and tracing we've got quite a lot of spare capacity within that system at the moment and one of the reasons is because there are very few flus and colds around at the moment so very few people are presenting uh, for testing so it's probably a good time to do that if you fast forward now on to the autumn time september october when we begin to really do the very difficult things in terms of looking at opening up schools and, and things like that, in terms of being able to survey disease and do really good disease surveillance, it's going to become more challenging because then we're getting into flu season, cold season. And if you go back to March time when our testing system was under very severe stress and was completely saturated, one of the reasons is many, many people were presenting for uh, tests because they had the symptoms because they're typical symptoms associated with colds and flus. 
how will that work when because we talked at the start about there being regional differences and how that has been important with various uh, prevalence rates so say next week I'm dying to go down to my family in Cork so I'll be in Cork from the minute I'm allowed on the 29th of June so how will that work then when we are seeing more geographical spread um, and it will be a little bit harder to to trace where everyone has been and who they've been in contact with uh, certainly, I could see situations where if there were clusters and well-identified clusters, and you've seen this now in Germany, they've begun to lift some of the restrictions. And this week, you know, there's quite a surge, but they were quite localized, and one of them, like a very significant one, in, in, in the meat factory. So, in those situations, you could imagine some regional sort of restrictions being put in place. And certainly, if that was the case, I'd, I'd favour that over sort of a national lockdown. I think. In my own view, again, I think we need to move away from national lockdowns, be more targeted in our in our measures um, and be sort of smarter around that. So if there are clusters and we can clearly identify those clusters, ideally, we want to pick up those early cases as soon as possible to prevent and to stop and to cut out the, the chain of transmission of the virus and even stop those clusters. So it does come back to uh, testing really in terms of preventing those clusters from flaring up and then potentially generating something that's more difficult to control. So say I do go to Cork next week and then after that I had been in an area which had seen a surge of cases. When I'm back in Dublin should I self-isolate if I know that there has been a regional outbreak in a place that I have been? Uh, I would say again we should be more targeted than that Sinead, because otherwise we're going to end up in a situation where a lot of people are going to be isolating and you could be isolating maybe for two weeks not knowing whether you were positive or negative and then maybe the same thing could happen two or three weeks later and you're asked to isolate again so in those in those situations I don't think that's really uh, practical so I think what the, what the testing is doing at the moment which I think is, is, is sensible and I think probably should have been done earlier where if you're tested positive all of your contacts, whether asymptomatic or symptomatic, are tested as well. And I think that's what we need to do. So we need to get away from this situation where we're locking everybody down or locking large numbers away or, you know, asking people to isolate for 14 days, not knowing if they're positive or negative, and then coming out after 14 days and maybe after another week being asked to isolate for another two weeks. And when we're in phase three, so from Monday onwards, how what can we do to minimize our own risk like should we be doing activities less often should we be still counting the number of people we're seeing is there anything that we should be doing outside of this date acronym i I think the date acronym is is pretty good because it, it really identifies the key things we should be conscious of so certainly from a personal responsibility the things i think we should be focusing on first of all in terms of if you have any of the symptoms as soon as the symptoms begin to appear I would recommend to get tested as soon as possible because that starts the process and it's really important to get tested as soon as possible. Second thing, obviously, in terms of social distancing and to be aware of that. And, you know, you probably see that, you know, as you go out and about now that, you know, and sometimes it is easy to settle back in and think that there's very little virus being circulating in the community. But social distancing is really important. Good hygiene practice, you know, washing hands, good, you know, coughing etiquette. All of that really, really important. And then finally, really in terms of in public places, especially public transport and in closed spaces where social distancing isn't important, the wearing of masks, I would say, is really, really important. So all of those things and sort of the personal responsibility behind that, I think would would help a lot in terms of as we move and unwind these restrictions, it will certainly help to decrease the risk of any flare ups. 
So we shouldn't feel bad if we do end up seeing lots and lots of people during the week, as long as we're being careful. Yeah, and I think once you know, once we respect that social distancing, so it's that sort of common sense type uh, approach, because we know how the virus sort of transmits from person to person. So I think that's uh, this sense of you know social distancing. I think that still still is important. And another debate that continues to rage in the UK have changed their uh, directions is the one meter versus two meters. So at the moment we're being asked to socially distance to two meters. Um, but there's a lot of calls for that to be de- to be decreased to one meter. Um, where is the science on that now? Are we getting any more detail about which is better and, and why? So first of all, Sinead, I would say that it's, it's like we know that social distancing works. Like if you look at some of the most effective measures even that worked for this country, it was those restrictions that were introduced prior to full lockdown in 28, which included social distancing. And that idea of distancing and isolation, that, that has always been, been used for many, many, many years in terms of part of good infection control. So we certainly know uh, it works. So the WHO recommendation is at least uh, one meter. We've obviously uh, you know, recommended uh, two meters. In terms of the science, there was a paper uh, published a couple of, we- couple of weeks ago in Lancet, which is you know, a very prestigious medical journal. And they basically reviewed all of the, the studies that had tried to look at this. And they came up then with pretty precise figures in terms of risks associated with whether you were two meters, one meter, or within one meter. But again, that paper has been challenged in terms of they made a number of assumptions. And at the moment, my reading is we can't, there isn't any definite numbers in terms of, uh, you know, being able to assign a specific risk for one meter over two meters. So I just don't think the exact science is, is available for at the moment. We certainly know and logic would dictate that two, two meters is, better than one because obviously it decreases the risk. But in terms of science, and I think we need to be careful here in terms of when we don't know, we should say we don't know. And I think in terms of the science and coming up with a precise number in terms of differentiating the risk between two and one, I don't think the science is there to be able to give a definite numbers uh, for those. So ultimately, I think that's going to come back and you're going to have to weigh up the risk in terms of for given scenarios is two meters. So if two meters work, where possible, use two meters. But there are other situations where two meters just is unworkable. And then we could look, look at a situation where, yes, one meter is, is used and try, because maybe the risk is probably increased, but try to mitigate that risk somehow. So if that's a case, for example, of wearing masks or whatever. But I think that's the approach that probably we need to go. But in terms of if you're looking for an exact, you know, based on science, an exact number, I don't, I don't, in my view, it doesn't exist at the moment in terms of differentiating between two metres and one metre. You mentioned masks there. And if you walk anywhere, you'll see that the uptake in masks is still really low. There's there's definitely more people not wearing masks than wearing them when you're in shops or uh, around the place. Is there any advice that you give to people? Is there any nugget that you've heard that really explains why it is the advice right now from from government and from authorities that we should be wearing masks when we're going into uh, places where other people are. Yeah, I think I think very early on when I looked at this, you know, and there was a lot of discussion and part of it is, and you know, you, you could say public health could have been more definitive earlier on. But again, you know, you wait, obviously public health was waiting for the science in terms of supporting that masks actually do help in terms of limiting the transmission of the virus. And I think certainly over the last number of weeks, maybe one to two months, 
the certainly the data has come in which would show that the use of masks certainly does help to reduce the transmission of the virus. And there's various studies out there uh, showing that. Uh, so certainly, like if you look at countries that have been really, really successful in terms of dealing you know, with the transmission of this virus, you know, a country like Taiwan, for example, which is endorsed up there of China, you know, they obviously had mass wearing of masks. They were incredibly successful in terms of dealing and suppressing the transmission of the virus. So certainly what I would say, Sinead, is certainly as we unwind the restrictions, as we move into situations where there are risks associated with unwinding the restrictions and there is increased risk, certainly by wearing masks and face coverings, it allows us to move to situations where it becomes more normal. Uh, we can get into those situations where even the two meter to one meter, we can go and reach that in a safe manner by wearing masks. So I think that's worth it in terms of because it's a way and it's one of the protective measures that begins to allow us to get back to more normal living. And we talked a, a good bit there about um, immunity, but we also know that this isn't the only coronavirus out there, even though we all just call it the coronavirus. There are, there are other uh, coronaviruses. If you've had another coronavirus, could you have immunity from that that could help or antibodies from that that could help? Yeah, possibly, Sinead. So, so when we look at immunity and what we call specific immunity, so that immunity that is triggered in response to an infection, and then we end up almost remembering that infection and we're immune to that infection, whether it be bacteria or a virus, there's two types. One is mediated by antibodies. We've heard a lot about antibodies, these neutralizing antibodies. And neutralizing antibodies work by recognizing the virus and stopping the virus from infecting our cells. So that's antibody-mediated immunity. But when the virus gets inside the cell, the cell becomes a factory then for the virus and produces many, many other viral particles. And unfortunately, antibodies can't get inside the cell to recognize those viruses. So we have another type of immunity called cell-mediated immunity. And cell-mediated immunity, we've got these T cells that can come along, recognize a cell in our body that's infected by the virus, and kill that virally infected cell. And that's called cell-mediated immunity. And it's really interesting, some studies now just appearing in the scientific literature, showing that if you were to look at blood samples taken pre-pandemic, so maybe years 2015, 2018, one specific study has shown, and those samples seem to have these T cells that have the ability to recognize the SARS coronavirus Two. Now, why would that be the case? Well, as you mentioned, we've got four coronaviruses that causes the common cold, and some parts of some of their proteins are similar to parts of the proteins in the SARS coronavirus too. So, one possibility is here by, by having been exposed to the these cold coronaviruses, there is a possibility that we may have some level of pre-existing immunity against the SARS coronavirus too. So that'll be something really interesting to watch out for. And as more studies is done on that to see if we do have some pre-existing immunity by having been exposed to other coronaviruses. So someone's previous pesky cold might have actually saved them from having a really bad bout of illness with COVID-19. Obviously, that's uh, quite speculative and we have to wait for a lot more research to be done. But it's a slightly optimistic uh, note to end on. Paul, thanks very much for joining us today on The Explainer. You're very welcome, Sinead. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Paul for all of his work on this episode. 
If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few months for you to support our journalism. It's obviously a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fell drastically during the COVID pandemic, but we are and want to keep providing you and the rest of our 800,000 daily users with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you felt it was important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and did contribute. A lot of you at the time asked if there was a way you could give more regularly. And we now have options for you to become a regular contributor if this is something you'd like to do. So please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute for more details. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find other shows on the coronavirus and much more. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.